coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter. So we knew that that could happen, uh, that we could be killed or seriously hurt. But I didn't think that I would be put in prison because no one up to that time in recent you know, living memory had been imprisoned, uh, certainly not a missionary. What would it be like to be in captivity for your faith in Jesus Christ? And what would it be like to be at home praying and watching and waiting? Hi, my name is Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm joined by Joel Rosenberg, and this is Inside the Epicenter podcast with Joel Rosenberg. We're joined today by some very, very special guests, and Joel and I are going to have a conversation with Andrew and Noreen Brunson. You may know that name from a story of a few years ago, which we're going to get into. Andrew, Noreen, welcome. We're very glad you're here. And Joel, thank you so much for having the opportunity Absolutely. for us. I'm to, so glad that it worked out for you guys to, to be with us. Thank you. Thank you. As we take people inside the epicenter, the term I use for Israel and the Arab Muslim world around it, um, we're trying to help people understand from multiple angles what is happening, why does it matter, where is God in this, um, how do we advance the Great Commission, which Christ commanded us to do regardless of the circumstances. And we know from his own circumstances and those of the Apostle Paul and everybody else, it wasn't easy. This is not an easy region to be a follower of Jesus Christ or to make disciples. And in many ways, we're trying to do a survey and help people look at uh, both the events in the news, but also the individual countries of this region that most people have very little context for. I want to start by saying thank you for, particularly to Andrew for letting me interview you for my new book, uh, Enemies and Allies. As it releases, I'm trying to help people understand this region and these trend lines. The forces of radical Islamism feel very emboldened at the moment, particularly in the, in the last few weeks, uh, which is hard as we uh, honor um, the, the sacrifices of those on 9-11 and those who fought for freedom in the region. But the forces of uh, peace and reconciliation and normalization are moving in the opposite direction. And God is on the move, but most people don't hear those stories of what's God doing in the midst of all this, what we call balagan in, in Hebrew, which is craziness, like chaos and, 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 a, and a circus atmosphere. So thank you for being a part of the book. And uh, it's, yours is an amazing story. Uh, let me begin by, with a direct question. So you were imprisoned in Turkey for two years, trumped up charges, you're a spy, you're a national security threat, you were a pastor of a relatively small congregation, evangelical Protestant congregation in Turkey. You guys had been in Turkey for several decades. You had to leave, and I just want to take people into this world. Let's start with why were you in Turkey? What was your life like? What were your views of Turkey and the people of Turkey as you tried to teach the word of God and, and uh, be witnesses for Jesus? Who wants to begin, Noreen? Sure, sure, sure I'll begin, and we'll just kind of trade sure, off back a little forth. bit. Well, that's exactly what we like to do. Good. So uh, the Lord, we, however he did it, he somehow put on our hearts that uh, we were to go to the Muslim world. And our board at that time sent us to Turkey, did not want to go. But 
you know, gradually, I would say actually within four years, our hearts were really tied in there. And so we were just plodding along. It's very slow going, up and down, two steps forward, one and a half back, two and a half back, you know. Not a dull day in Turkey is what I always say. Uh, some good ones, many bad ones, but in part always because people happen. say, is this an accurate uh, assessment that it is one of the least evangelized countries exactly. in the world? Even though much of the New Testament was either written in there or to the churches of, of yes. what we would call Turkey yes. today. Yes, and I want to go back to this a little bit later. What had happened about a century mm. prior, but anyway, so it was slow going, relative freedom compared mm. to countries around there uh, mm. to share the gospel, but very low interest. Mm. So slow going. Fast forward to 2009, the Lord says, prepare for harvest. And that surprise just made us think something is coming sooner. He also showed that was going to come in difficult circumstances. We didn't know what that would be. We didn't know we would be caught up in those. But then as we look at events in the last years, we see how Turkey has come into difficult times. We went through that as well. But that is what is preparing for the move of God in that place. Partly, it's one of the things I should say. Your arrival in Turkey... What, what was God specifically asking you to do as you arrived, Andrew? Well, I assumed it was evangelism because, as you mentioned, Turkey is it's actually the largest unevangelized country in the world, meaning of the large countries is the one that's least evangelized. And uh, I thought that I was going to end up teaching at a seminary somewhere, and I ended up going to place it. I had no need for seminaries because there's no church. And so I, I knew that we were going to be basically in pioneer church planting, and that's what we did. We were involved in several church plants uh, during our time in Turkey. So I knew that that was going to be our focus. And as Noreen said, we didn't want to be there. But the way I see it is God put some of his love for Turkey into our hearts. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just the food or the culture. We weren't enamored of all of those things. It was, oh, that we do enjoy them. But it was a commitment that grew in our hearts to see God's blessing, to see the kingdom come to Turkey. And then things went badly. Uh, you were there for 20-some years, right? 23 years. 23. And then the imprisonment, and I have to count those two years. So yeah, 25 yeah. Oh, years. Sure. You were definitely in, on Turkey <laughs> yes. soil. Uh, so he, he always says 23 by choice. Two by two force. Quarter of a century. Yeah. So take us briefly into how you were arrested and what you thought was happening, just so people have some context for then the terrible ordeal that you then both endured. So we were called into the police station and told that there was an order to deport us. And as they held us for deportation, they would arrest us. So we expected that within the next two or three days after they arrested us, we would be deported. But they didn't. Uh, They kept us for two weeks together. And then they released Noreen. And then they held on to me for the next two years. And all along, they, they made up different reasons, gave different reasons to hold us. So I usually think of this as a God story and the human story. And the human side is the reasons they were giving, the intrigue, uh, later trying to leverage me to gain concessions from the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, so things like that. And then there's the underlying God story, which is I think God was very involved in this. I don't think he put me into prison. Mm-hmm. I think that was a satanic attack. But he intended to use it for his purposes. So then I think, why were they holding me? Well, they had their reasons, and then God had his reasons to have that continue on longer than most people expected it to go. Now, you had mentioned at the beginning that I was held for two years. Yes, it was two years. And if I'd known it was going to be two years, it would have been really hard, but I would have been counting the days down. I didn't know it would be two years. Uh, They wanted three life sentences for me. 
plus 35 years on top of that, just to make sure that it would be enough. So three life sentences in solitary confinement with no possibility of parole. And so that was the actual you know, pressure uh, and uncertainty I was living under. And it wasn't until the very day that I was released that I knew that I was going to be released. Mm-hmm. Up until then, there we didn't know. Mm-hmm. When I interviewed you for Enemies and Allies, I mean, one of the things I, I told you was when you wrote your book, your, your memoir of what had happened, which I highly commend everybody to read, and we need to make sure we have it linked and so forth. I know you, you didn't choose the title, God's Hostage, but in the grand scheme, uh, you were like Satan's hostage, but God sovereignly allowed it, I think yes, is, is yes. A, maybe the fair way. You, you, you made a point to me, and, at least, and I don't remember if I put that part in the book, but, but I think what's interesting is I told you I was not prepared for how candid you were about what an enormously painful ordeal this was. I mean, we all have this, what we think is an understanding of how hard it would be to be arrested for your faith. Mm-hmm. And we see the Apostle Paul and we think, oh, wow, he was so brave. And, but God used it and, you know, and you know, he wrote half the New Testament and it all was very fruitful. Okay, so we all, anybody who goes into ministry in a foreign land, especially a challenging one, thinks, all right, I need to be prepared if something happens. But you describe, okay, I thought one thing, and it was, it was far worse than you expected. Would you just take us into your journey? And then I, in a moment, Nori and I, we want you to, you had the same journey in a sense, but from the outside, and, and then the feeling of helplessness of how do I, how do I make a difference? So we had prepared our hearts uh, as much as we could for some areas of risk. So there were bomb threats, there were death threats. I was attacked by a gunman once. So we knew that that could happen, uh, that we could be killed or seriously hurt. But I didn't think that I would be put in prison because no one up to that time in recent, you know, in living memory had been imprisoned, uh, certainly not a missionary. In Turkey. In Turkey, for, in Turkey. for their yes. faith. Right. And so this isn't something I expected. Uh, but even if I had... Realistically, looking back at the way I thought, because of the biographies I've read and you know my, my spiritual heroes, I would have had a sense of bravado, you know, fear, but also you know it's going to be great. It's going to be you know I'm going to be filled with uh, with strength, and it'll be there will be some grief, but I will also have a sense of joy because we all know that Paul and we'll be singing in the prison, singing in prison, sharing the gospel <laughs> yeah. with all the. Yeah. And he did those prisoners. two things. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I did those things, but it wasn't with any feeling of joy. Mm-hmm. And I felt very weak. Uh, instead of strength, I felt weakness. I didn't have any sense of, uh, I would say, a felt grace. It was more of an unfelt grace. I see it clearly as I look back. Mm-hmm. But I broke in prison. And I was actually very surprised at how thoroughly and uh, deeply I broke and how often I broke. And I, I think there was a... A high level of spiritual warfare going on because of what it was at stake. Uh, God was doing some very big things with this. I was just in the middle of something big that he was doing. But it was much more difficult than I anticipated. And because of my expectations especially, the conditions were enough to, to break me anyway. But my expectations of relationally with God, that took me into spiritual crisis because those expectations weren't met. I'm saying... I've been teaching on the father heart of God, and then I'm thinking, where is my kind, gentle father? I don't see his hand. And actually, I I questioned uh, his existence, which was uh, distressing to me after having been a missionary for 23 years and seeing many uh, Turks come to Jesus for a ministry to 
end up questioning even if God exists. And it was the unmet expectations led to a wounding in my heart, an offended heart toward God that was strangling my relationship with him. And that was the first year. And the second year was still very difficult, but God began to rebuild me. Andrew, Noreen, this is so touching to me. And I've related to the stories of those that have been imprisoned for their faith and, and how it changes some of those dynamics. And I'm, I'm, I'm so looking forward to hearing more about what God um, did in your lives and how he's using that story even now. Um, we're going to take a quick break here for a couple things that we need to take care of. Um, but when we come back, I'm sure Joel will want to ask more about those uh, conversations that you had with God and uh, some of those things that uh, you've been able to share since that time. So we'll be back in just a minute. Hi, this is Joel Rosenberg. If you've enjoyed this podcast, let us know. Go to joshuafund.com and use the contact us form to provide feedback. Likewise, if you'd like this podcast to continue, you can donate through our giving page and you can find that link in the upper right-hand corner at joshuafund.com. Well, we're back. Joel, I know um, it's been challenging even just to listen to Andrew share about the the dark night of the soul uh, in that context. But uh, I know that you wanted to ask a few more things about that experience and how Noreen and, and Andrew uh, have responded since and, and where God is taking them in this direction. Yeah. So, In a moment, I want you to help us, uh, our viewers and listeners, understand what it means by you broke. Mm. But let's get to that in a moment because let's sort of in real time shift over. Noreen, you were kicked out of the country. I was not. Oh, you're not kicked out of the country. Okay. I was not. <laughs> you're not. I feared that would happen. We okay. both feared that You were about happen. to be deported, though. Well, that wasn't clear. Can I, can I yeah. say something? Okay, sure. She stayed in Turkey after she was released, even though there was risk to, to her. She stayed uh, because she was the only person who could visit me when That's I was in prison. Okay. Yeah. And so she actually placed herself at risk wow. because of her love okay. for me. Okay. So she's, I think she's very brave. But it wasn't clear that they would allow me to stay. And in fact, there was this constant, you know, am I getting the next visa? They take this one away. You know, there was this constant stress going on as to whether I could stay. But yes, I was there. And of course, you didn't know how long this was going to be. And no. was your assumption up front, it wasn't going to be that long? It was... No, what I, was your uh, assumption? What were you thinking in, yeah, during this time? Honestly, when we went into, were signed into the, checked into the detention center, whatever you, you don't sign in. <laughs> the guest but, register uh, yeah. was, uh, you yeah. know, welcome. They ticked not only the threat to national security, which is a typical, is a large category, a catch-all for these kinds of things. This is what they use for uh, missionaries, foreign workers that they're deporting. But in our case, then there was an extra phone call that came right there to the official which led him to check the box for terrorism, activity related to terrorism, member of, aiding, and, you know, things like that. And so I felt that something else was wrong. My heart sank at that point, and I thought, I didn't tell him, but I thought I was concerned. And God had talked about this harvest coming in Turkey, and people were being arrested right and left, and I thought maybe God wants us in prison among all these people who will be more open to the gospel. So I thought that maybe this was the way he was going to start the harvest in prison. What were your visits with Andrew like? How often did you get to have them? And what were your impressions of how he was doing um, in your own 
heart. So the conditions varied, but once he was put in actual prison, uh, maximum security prison, actually as a foreigner accused of uh, terrorism, he had no rights to visits. So I had to get special permission from the Ministry of Justice in the capital for every single visit. And we ended up getting a system going, and, and that happened. But it was once a week through glass or at times, bars on the phone every other month in person, and that was the only time that we could be together, physically together. Once every two months. Once every two months, and that I could just uh, tell him some things a little bit more openly because we, you know, you've, you're always, every letter is being checked, every phone call is listened to, every visit is recorded. So that was difficult. But yeah, I could see how hard this was for him, definitely. Well, I became suicidal. And I, I forgot to mention before what was the thing that really took me into crisis with God was uh, the expectation of presence because I had pursued God's presence for a number of years. I'd really focused on that, and in our ministry, that was what we gave the highest value to was seeking his presence, welcoming his presence. And the sense of God's presence was entirely removed from me for those two years. So I was really shocked because I, I thought, you know, I've had so many experiences with God I said to him at some point, are you just the God of conferences, you know? <laughs> and here I am in the most difficult time of my life. Where are you now? Yeah, yeah. And I'm experiencing that dark night of the soul and feeling abandoned by him. Right. Yeah. And it's not like you were just abandoned up in the mountains. To be in a cell, well, sometimes you were, it was uh, solitary, but there were times you were in with Muslim prisoners who were terrorists, or at least they were accused of terrorists, and you probably believe that they, some of them might have been, or criminals or whatever, constant prayer calls and the risk of you even being attacked in, in the cell. So there was, you, you didn't have a Bible for a long period of time, as I recall. But to help us through, because uh, I want you to kind of walk us through, and maybe my memory is faulty on some of these parts from the book, because you had multiple different phases of your confinement. So solitary confinement was very difficult. I began to break there. And uh, there it's uh, the fear, the sleep deprivation, because my body deprived me of sleep. Just all the adrenaline coming from that fear, it builds up over time. That led to constant panic attacks uh, that just overwhelmed me. And so when I talk about breaking, physically I broke down. I lost about 50 pounds in the first months, and I was just a wreck physically and emotionally. When I moved into prison, I'm put into a, a cell that's built for eight people. There were over 20 of us in it, mm-hmm. and you don't leave the cell. You're 24-7 in that cell. Uh, so it was a very uh, intense environment. Everyone that I was in a cell with during my time in prison was a very committed Muslim. They were all accused of being part of the Gulen movement. They were accused of being behind an attempted coup against President Erdogan in Turkey. So the only contact I had with a Christian during my time Uh, in prison was with Noreen. Mm -hmm. The rest of the time, I was very isolated. And that isolation, even when I'm in a crowded cell, I felt, well, I'm isolated by my culture and life experience and nationality, but uh, isolated spiritually, Mm -hmm. just feeling so alone. And that means when I'm confused, I have questions, talking about a conversation with God, it usually felt like a one-way conversation, and I'm, I'm not getting answers. I feel abandoned, betrayed which I was not, but that's how I felt. So in that confusion, theological questions and no other believer to help to correct me, then that contributed to just a a downward spiral for me. You even alluded to it a moment ago. There was year one, and then there was year two, and things began to turn 
walk us through the, the shift. Was there a specific turning point or a series of moments that began to change the dynamic for you spiritually and emotionally? Well, one thing that happened is President Trump had a, a summit with the president of Turkey, and he asked for my release three times. And the answer and that news broke through to you, or through Noreen, or how did you know? Well, it that? was all over the Turkish media. So they, I mean, this they, was they a, got into the prison. You this knew. was a very big deal, yeah, because uh, the Turkish media was saying the day after the summit. Who is this priest Brunson? Here there are so many issues between Turkey and the U.S. And, and in 23 minutes, they asked for his release. Three times. Who is he? You know, wow. so why, why is Trump focused on this when yes. there are so many other right. things? So it broke, and there was one day there where it's like, what way is the Turkish government going to go? They could say, yes, we're going to release him. This has been a big misunderstanding to, you know, have a better relationship with President Trump. Or they could go the other way, and they went the other way, mm-hmm. and then they have, uh, you know, the foreign I mean, they minister. They dug in their heels and yes. said no. Well, the not. foreign minister of Turkey went on TV and said Brunson is a terrorist. You know, we, we have all the evidence. We've turned it over to Washington, and he is in prison. He will remain there. And so, mm-hmm. so after that, the, well, there were a series of things, but they did agree to my release, and they backed out. And I spent another 17 months in prison after that. It looked to me like it went all the way to the top, and it didn't work. And so I lost a lot of hope. Mm, wow. uh, and I also was at a point uh, spiritually where, well, I lost all hope. I felt betrayed by God. And suddenly I became aware through God's grace. He just drove into my heart uh, this picture of being in, in the valley of testing. And it was full of the bones of and skeletons of believers who had failed in their tests. Mm-hmm. And uh, not talking about their eternal destiny, but certainly they lost their friendship with God. Mm-hmm. And I, it just drove into my heart that that's the point I was at after so many years with him that I was at the point of losing that mm-hmm. relationship, that friendship. And this drove me to make decisions that I was going to fight for my mm-hmm. relationship with God. And... I made a decision to turn my eyes toward him mm-hmm. rather than away. It was kind of some very simple decisions, very basic. Whatever you do or don't do, I'm going to follow you. And beginning a series of disciplines to focus myself, turn my eyes on him every day. Mm-hmm. And I think the real battle for me, I knew what God wanted for me, uh, what victory would look like there. And it, would, it was surrender in the sense of saying, I cannot embrace prison but I can embrace serving God's purposes. And if your purposes, God, are best served by my being here, then I need to be willing to remain here. And fighting toward that point, and it was difficult to get to it, but I did it a number of times during my first year, but then I'd, you know, I'd get knocked down again. The second year, what happened is I much more consistently got to that point to where I was doing it every day, getting to that point of victory, saying, I'm willing to remain here if this is what you want me to do if this will serve your purposes wow wow noreen what was happening on the outside how did it get up to the president so that he would talk about it three times in a meeting with erdogan yeah uh it was a miracle honestly believers all over the world the lord just took this i spread the word to you know people that i knew who would pray they spread it and it went on and on supernaturally really uh, the prayer movement just went literally around the world so but on the human level 
Christians were praying, and they were contacting their representatives. And then this was putting pressure. There were so many calls coming in to the... Were you doing interviews yourself during that period? No. I was laying very low okay. in yeah. Turkey. You didn't want to say anything that would make I wanted to just be able him. to stay there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be uh, forced to leave myself. But Christian Talk Radio picked this up, and CBN News, others were, were, were reporting on this. Uh, little by little, yeah. yes. And our daughter did some interviews. She okay. was uh, stateside, and she became like the face of the family. So basically, this made the, its way to uh, Vice President Pence very early on, and uh, he probably was instrumental in all this. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. the Lord just put it. It was just supernatural, really, the um, way he worked things out and to get it to that level and to put it in President Trump's heart to keep at this because – this was a period of from the first time you, he asked for your release until uh, it happened. It was 17 months, I think you would count it out. Yeah. So, you know, for him to not give up on this, yeah. you know, we were very grateful. So reaching the president is hard enough. But then he has to be interested in what you say. And then he has to remember it. And then he has to decide to do something about it. So right. it's actually a number of steps. It's and not just with reaching him. Yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. And so it did reach him, but somehow the interest remained and he engaged over a long period of time. And that's... Including, uh, we should note, and again, we're a nonpartisan organization. We're not trying to make yeah, this sure. a political thing. We're just saying th- th- these, this is what happened. Um, but it's interesting, too, he... he I mean, Turkey's a NATO ally. It's supposed to be, you know, one of our great friends. And it's the second or the largest army in Europe, rather, um, aside from, you know, us. But he imposed sanctions, economic sanctions that began to affect the the currency and the the markets uh, in Turkey. That was that was pretty dramatic move because to impose sanctions on an ally was a big deal. I think uh, President Trump finally took it personally when they had a deal and uh, that involved Israel, part of it involved Israel, actually, and then it Erdogan pulled out. Or he broke the deal, I should say. And this finally, there had been a number of things like that, but I think President Trump began to take it personally. And, he likes uh, to make deals, and if you break it, yeah. he's not a happy camper. And so so it, the, the sanctions imposed were actually not uh, very heavy sanctions at all, but the, I think that people reacted to this, investors did, and they pulled out. So that uh, the currency collapsed and the stock market lost $40 billion uh, just overnight. And The Economist magazine actually said Andrew Brunson may be the most expensive prisoner in the world. (laughs) So the Turkish economy already had structural problems, and they were headed in that direction, but this was just kind of what nudged them over. And what it did also was give Erdogan an opportunity to blame the United States and to blame me for the economy crashing, even though they had really set it up to fall anyway. And, yeah, go, please. and, and you were also like kind of used as a pawn in an exchange. That was fascinating. And I was really intrigued by how all of that took place. I mean, as, uh, as I was reading the news during those months, I mean, the uh, former Ambassador says, you couldn't have written a, a worse story. You know, I'm just watching all I these things. I write these things stories, and I'm telling you, yours was much more dramatic. <laughs> Between the two countries that are going just in a bad direction, we're not part of any of this, but it's all affecting our case. And so that was very difficult to see yeah. that happen, yeah. yeah. Let's now bring you to the day of your trial, or at least the, the sentence, and your release, so that people can hear that story. And then I want to talk about some of the lessons learned and your continued heart for Turkey and the, and the people of the Middle East. 
So I had several trial dates, and political trials in Turkey can stretch out for years. You have a, a day, and then they'll take a break for three or four months, and then another session. Uh, in my last uh, trial session, the U.S. had already put tremendous pressure on Turkey, but nobody knew what was going to happen. Uh, so we go to trial that day, and they move very quickly. It's clear they're moving to convict me. Uh, so they convicted me of being part of a terror group, of supporting terror groups. And then they sentenced me. And I thought, well, after all this pressure and all this prayer, because I became uh, maybe the historians have told me there was an unprecedented prayer movement focused on one person. Mm -hmm. So there hasn't been another prayer movement like this that went to so many countries focused on one person. So I, after all this prayer and all this diplomatic pressure, I'm going back to prison. This is the answer. And uh, then they suddenly said, you're free to go. So prison sentence, but you can appeal it, and you can be out while you appeal it, and you can leave the country. So it was just a roller coaster of conviction, sentencing, and then the rush to get us to the airport. Uh, the president sent a, an Air Force plane to get us, to get us out as quickly as possible, because any tweet or anything right. that offended the president of Turkey right. could, could immediately change just change his mind. So getting us out of there, we go from, you know, that, that terrible experience mm -hmm. of conviction and sentencing to the White House in a day. Take us into that meeting to be in the Oval Office. Had, had you even had you ever gone on a tour of the White House prior to that? I've been on a tour, but not, <laughs> not of the Oval <laughs> Office. That's a little different, yeah. So take us into that moment, because it's a special moment. Again, I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about an imprisoned pastor of a small but faithful church suddenly become the most known Christian in the entire Middle East in this season, the most prayed for, and suddenly you're sitting with the President of the United States, the Vice President of the United States, I think Secretary Pompeo was there as well, and what was that like? And then you asked if you could pray for the President. I'd love you to just recount some of that for us. So it felt very surreal to be experiencing this. <laughs> From the time that, that uh, they were passing sentence in the court, I just felt like I, I was an observer. And, and some of this is from post-traumatic stress. There can be a sense of uh, separation from what's happening, detachment. Happen, a, a detachment. Yeah. But the reason we prayed for him is because of uh, Noreen. So, yeah, I'd had, a, I'd had a dream two months prior in which I was trying to pray Isaiah 11, sevenfold spirit, trying to pray that over President Trump. He was sitting across from me in an armchair, and I was being thwarted in my attempts to pray over him. Mm. Uh, time and again, and so I woke up thinking it is important that I pray this. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if we ever end up there at the White House, if Andrew's released, all these ifs, mm -hmm. I want to pray that over him mm -hmm. in person. So I shared that with Andrew, and he said, yeah, I'd like to pray too. So it gave a lot of boldness because it felt like God is in this. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the video, because this was actually, played, we weren't thinking of this, but it went live and the, the uh, news organization stayed with it. And I see Noreen sitting across from the president and praying over him exactly as she had in her dream. Uh, another thing that, uh, that hit me uh, is when during that uh, summit between Trump and Erdogan where he'd asked for my release, uh, all the pictures and, and on the news they, that they showed in Turkey, they had them sitting in these two yellow chairs. And... We walk into the Oval Office, and President Trump points me to the same yellow chair that Erdogan had sat wow. in. Wow. And Erdogan had sat there and three times rejected, basically, 
uh, releasing me. And now God has put me into that same chair. And so I just... (laughs) God loves irony. Yes. (laughs) He's a dramatic God. He he is quite the author. Uh, And it was a thriller. I'm sorry... You know, humanly, you say we're sorry that you two and your family and your friends, the congregation, had to go through this. But God sovereignly had a lot going on. And so what have you learned from this? So one one of the things that just here and there, I, I don't have clear understanding of all the things that were happening that God was doing. But here and there, he's, he's given me some insight to some things. And one of them, I, I just one day just had a, a real sense of, of how God honored me by giving me a difficult assignment, and that he trusted me with a very difficult assignment. I didn't feel very honored when I was going through it. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. But a lot of people who suffer uh, for their faith do not see any of the results here in this life. It's only in eternity that God shows them how he was using that. Uh, but with us, we have seen some of those things, and we saw this unprecedented permit. I believe that God was using me as a lightning rod to draw that prayer into Turkey, draw the eyes of many people around the world to prepare for harvest there. And there's a reason why he chose Turkey for that unprecedented prayer movement, because it was the head of the Ottoman Empire, the head of the Muslim world for centuries. So I think spiritually it's a key place. So God was doing something, gathering all that prayer far beyond just getting me out of prison. Uh, It's intended to prepare for a powerful move there. And as I look back, I thought, This was an assignment God had given me in 2009, prepare for harvest. Here I am in prison thinking, how can I prepare for harvest in prison? My assignment has been canceled. What did I do, God? Did I disqualify myself? And then we see, we begin to see, wait, God is actually using me in prison much more than outside. I'm not doing anything. He's gathering this prayer movement. But that was scary, too, that you'd be of more use to him in prison. I'm more valuable in prison than (laughs) out, so I may never get out. But... So, yeah. so then I, I, I was just overwhelmed uh, after but I you, got out. But just to be clear, you got to your Garden of Gethsemane moment. You, you, were, you may not have been sweating drops of blood, but you effectively were you know, a, a broken... Sure. Uh, I was suicidal. Uh, sure. yes. Suicidal sure. person. Yes. And, and yet you came to that moment, not my will, Lord, let this cup pass mm-hmm. me. But not yes. my will, but yours be done. And I, it's, it is emotional to me. I, I wept when I read it. Sitting with you again, and now, and with you as a team, that it's because very few of us really get um, well. Not like that. I mean, actually, many believers get to very difficult moments, but we have to get to the moment where we say, "This is what I want. I do not want to suffer." And apparently, for Jesus, it wasn't sin to tell the Father, "I don't want to suffer." So please, isn't there any other way? And this is the sovereign yeah. God incarnate saying, "I don't want to do it." That's not, apparently that's not sin. As long as he was able to say, and as as we are able to say, if we can, by God's mercies, but I'll do what you ask. And and God did let you get to that point. And that began to be the the road upward for you. It's amazing. Uh, It was a Garden of Gethsemane story for you. I had all these questions for God. Well, (laughs) accusations is part of it, but... Uh, really questioning uh, his faithfulness and love. And, and at some point, it just kind of dawned on me that it was my love and my faithfulness that were being tested. And I had been really longing for presence. This is what I was really offended at, that I didn't have it. And I became more focused on not what I wanted, but what God wanted. 
And what he wanted from me was a simple devotion, even when I had doubts and questions when I'm in the dark. He wasn't going to send you the angel to appear to you or let your chains release or some of the stories that we love so much about the book of Acts, for example. It's one of the things you mentioned, Paul, before in, in prison. Yeah. And, and I look at his perspective, you know, these momentary light afflictions. There's some, And that actually wasn't very encouraging to me because I thought, but so actually honest, Paul, so Paul had this encounter with the living Jesus, so powerful, it knocked him off his horse, right? We all know about that one. He also went to heaven, mm-hmm. uh, and, and he saw. So when he wrote those things, I say he wasn't saying it out of faith. He was saying it out from his experience. He'd seen, and that helped him to have a very different perspective. And I begged for those kinds of experiences, and I said to God, you know, if you'd only do this for me, if you take me up to heaven for five minutes like you did Paul, <laughs> then I'm sure that I would change my perspective and I would just shut up and stop complaining. Uh, but he didn't give that to me. But he did build this fear of God and a right perspective in me, especially the last year I was there. I wrote a song in prison. It just came from my heart that I would sing to him. And it was right after I found out that they wanted three life sentences for me. So this wasn't a happy you know, time. It was. It really came from it was an expression of surrender and love for him. It says, I want to be found worthy to stand before you on that day with no regrets and cowardice or things left undone. And I sang that every day. And I'm basically saying, I am living for the day. I want to live for the day that I stand before you, Jesus. Because I'd had this, just this picture of standing before him at the end of my life and him saying to me, Andrew, there, there were assignments I had for you that you didn't complete because you were a coward. Mm-hmm. And I had just a few months before I had said, I renounce any assignments you have for me, anything that you have planned for ministry in the future. I don't want it. I don't want to serve. I can't. Just release me. And that was such a low point for me. And there had been such a change in my mindset. I'm saying, no, now I'm living for that day I stand before Jesus. And doing that every day and pressing into that surrender every day of saying, I am living for eternity. Uh, I didn't feel that. It wasn't a feeling. It was a decision and, and an exercise of the will and a discipline. But over time, as I did that every day, it grew in me. And it built in me a determination. And it, it really changed my mindset. So right now, I'm, I'm more focused than I've ever been on just, I'm supposed to be faithful to my assignments. And uh, when I got up this morning, you know, that is what I start most of my days, not every day. <laughs> I say, I want to live for that day I stand before you. We need to draw to a close soon, but, um, you know, Carl, before he came to be executive director of the Joshua Fund, um, he's had a number of other gigs, uh, really important roles, actually. One, one of them was uh, nine years as director of uh, Open Doors uh, USA, uh, the ministry that Brother Andrew founded. And, uh, you know, you've traveled all over the globe and all over the Middle East, uh, spending time with underground pastors and above-ground pastors. I'm, I think you should just finish up with your questions for them on um, you know, how we can pray and wh- whatever else is on your heart because I think it's it's such a fascinating story. We could go on and people, you actually do need to read the book, uh, God's Hostage. I capture some of it in Enemies and Allies, but only as a teaser uh, to encourage you to actually uh, read the full book or also as I did was to listen to the book because you read the book. And it's very interesting, you know, having not met you yet, but to actually hear you tell your story and as candid and as 
hard as it was of a story to tell. I mean, it had a great ending, but you didn't know that. Uh, yes. It was very personal for me. But um, yeah. I'll leave the last section here to you, Carl. Cause <laughs> well, thanks, Joel. You, you, and, you love um, people who are uh, struggling yeah. and uh, cared deeply for them. Um, you know, it's beautiful to meet you and to hear your story because in, in my experience, as Joel said, I've had conversations with brothers and sisters who've suffered um, whether it's in China or whether it was in Iran, in other parts of the world where they've been imprisoned for their faith. Even a brother who, back in communism, was put in prison in Czechoslovakia. And your experience, Andrew, um, is so reminiscent of many of those conversations um, with the reality of, of emptying um, their ministry on the floor of a prison cell there was a, a famous Chinese um, believer, spent 20 years in prison. And a friend of mine once asked him a, a question. Brother W., how do you survive imprisonment in 20 years? He goes, well, he said, the, the reality of meeting Christ in a prison cell is far more common than meeting Christ in a, in a conference or in an environment of, of positivity and my friend asked him, said, so how do we do that in the West? How do we do that in prosperity? How do we do that? And he says, you may have to build yourself a cell. You may have to place yourself in an environment where you have that loss and suffering and you empty everything. And I just want to uh, say thank you for sharing your story. And uh, Noreen, thank you for sharing your story because the sometimes we... Uh, we celebrate the suffering in, in, in a strange way. We make celebrities of those that, that have, you know, become, you know, martyrs in, in many places. But what people don't see often are those that suffer and survive and stay faithful in the midst of that. So, again, thank you for your faithfulness in being present with Andrew during that time. And um, I would just love to ask you now, it's been two years since uh, your release, or uh, has it been two, two and years? Two and a half going on three. Two and a half going on three. Um, in this time, what has God been showing you? Because um, not many people uh, have the experience you had uh, globally. Praise God. Praise God. <laughs> but you have the opportunity to share, like in this podcast and other places, what is God doing now uh, in your experience, and how has he taking this and, and taking it to, to other people. So one, as we said, we realized this wasn't about us. It was primary. It was, well, it was all about us, but it was also very much about what God's purpose is for Turkey, for the Muslim world. This right. is the time for the Muslim world. And prayer poured in. And so it was highlighted. And that's just softening up the ground. So that's one huge thing. But additionally, I think that you would say this, one of the purposes was to prepare you so that you could help prepare people even in this country as we think that we're going into difficult times. So I had a very difficult time and broke so much. And every time I broke, I had to get up again. Well, I didn't have to, but I, I did get up again. And what, one of the things God was doing was teaching me through difficult experience. I had to learn and put into practice a number of things so that I could strengthen myself to stand. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons for that was that so so that I would be able to encourage others who are going to face difficulty or are going through difficulty 
what are some of those things that I learned that can help them? So I, I actually think that, that in the States, and I, I'm not saying that people are going to be put in prison the way that I was. I, I don't know what will happen exactly, how far it will go. I think it's a, there's a way that's going to crash onto the church. Yeah. And my real concern is that very few people are ready. Most people are not ready for it. And there's a danger in not being prepared in your heart for persecution because uh, if we're not ready, we're more likely to get knocked out. Yeah. Wow. That's a powerful word. Um, and I would say yes and amen mm-hmm. to the fact that being prepared, being exposed and, and experienced is, is such a need in the church right now. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for sharing that. And I would like to thank Joel. Thank you all for this conversation. It's been powerful and it's been really moving. Um, yeah. I, I do have to ask you, as just as we close, yeah. how would you encourage our viewers to watch or end on this, uh, to, to pray for Turkey in particular and mm. pray for the Muslim world? Because uh, you are now not there, but you're obviously your passion and your encouragement of this prayer movement. We don't want it to end. Uh, Absolutely. So how can we pray? Yeah. First, I pray for the small church, not only in Turkey, but in other Muslim countries, a Muslim background believing yeah. church. Uh, that they be a light, that they be able to stand under pressure. We also pray for Jesus to interrupt many more dreams. As you know, many Muslims who come to Jesus have some uh, dream that really starts them or confirms them uh, in seeking. And so I I believe there's going to be a very powerful move of God. I think millions of Muslims in the Middle East are going to come into the kingdom. But it's going to come in the midst of difficult circumstances. So one thing is to pray, as you said, just that the church, that the believers will stand firm um, and be faithful until the end. We don't take that for granted. That's something we pray for ourselves, too, that we'll be faithful until the end. Um, And I think one of the things we have to remember is uh, as hard as your story was, you had a president of the world superpower uh, and and, and many in Congress and from both parties advocating for you. But if you're a Muslim who's come to faith in Jesus and you're in some country in the Middle East, nobody That's right. is coming for you. That's right. I mean, God is still your king and, he, and, and you, you're describing a Job-like experience too. Like, I'm faithful, but Lord, and the, the, the depth that Job went into, and Job never really gets the, and this is why I did it. Yes. <laughs> it's, hey, yeah. who's bigger? Who's grander? Who's got a bigger plan? It's me, not you. And, and he, he's able to respond to that positively, but... So we have a lot of forgotten, unknown, not, you know, doesn't become a news story, doesn't, there are so many yeah. that are like that. And we need to, you know, Jesus commands us to be praying for those in prison and visit if we can. Um, this is part of the Joshua Fund ministry. Anyway, this is just a, a taste, but I hope that even if this is all, we say, we have an expression in Hebrew, dayenu. Uh, this alone would be enough. Lord, if you if you only told us this story and this podcast is all somebody has of your story, I hope that this is enough to cause people to start thinking and praying differently. But I hope it isn't enough for people. I hope it's just a taste and they say, I need to ne- know the story more in depth. And I need to understand how the turkey piece fits into the larger piece. Because I agree with you. I And I describe in the book um, the geopolitical, but also the prophetic there are prophecies. We're not going to get into them right now, but we haven't and we will in more podcasts. There is a prophecy coming where Russia, Iran, Turkey, Libya, and a number of other countries band together and uh, 
uh, it's, a, it's an end times prophecy. Maybe it won't happen in our lifetime. But if you look at what's, what's going on in the region, you think, wow, for the first moment in 2,600 years since Ezekiel wrote the War of Gog and Magog prophecy, the, the pieces seem to be lining up in a way that it's conceivable. And what happens at the end of that prophecy? Ezekiel 39, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And we know when the Holy Spirit is poured out, there's a massive response to Christ. And so if that happens in our lifetime, amen. As hard as that would be, we know there's an ending to that story that's powerful. But even now, I think that's the great thing is we are seeing Jews and Muslims considering for the first time in history in these large numbers, is it possible that Jesus is who he said he is? Mm. May their tribe of people saying yes increase. There are these ancient wells, many of them in that whole region. And so we're just praying for those two, once again, for resurrection, mm-hmm. resurrection life and power to those things, for God's kingdom come and his will be done in Amen. those places. So he Preach will, sister. difficulty, but, <laughs> you know, uh, powerful move of God also. Great story. Thank you for sharing your hearts uh, candidly. I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Amen. And amen. Andrew and Noreen, thank you so much. And Joel, thank you for guiding us through this conversation. And thank everyone for listening. Um, If you have been blessed by this podcast, and I know I have, uh, please check out the show notes that we have that we always include the book. And there's a link there to Andrew's book, um, God's Hostage. And there's a link there to Joel's new book, um, uh, Enemies and Allies. And sign up at our website at joshuafund.com for our newsletter and for lots of other uh, resources to pray and to give and to go about the Middle East. For Joel Rosenberg and the entire Joshua Fund, thank you, Noreen. Thank you, Andrew. I'm Carl Muller. God bless you. And thanks for listening to this podcast of Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.